It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Here's the show. Hi, everyone. It's Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. And today I will be concluding my two-part talk on the life and career of John Garfield, the Jewish-American actor who well represented the working class in his many movies in Hollywood, where he was a huge star in the 1940s. In part one, I discussed Garfield's formative life in New York, his fateful time as a hobo in the early years of the Depression, his journey to becoming an actor, and the creation of his on-screen Hollywood persona, which was so popular, he became a major star by the time of World War II. Please go to the city's SoundCloud page, where you'll find this and other of my talks related to the history of Hollywood films. With this, part two, much of which is based on the work of film historian Katrina Longworth, things will take an increasingly downward trajectory, both personally and professionally, for Garfield. Despite the many great films to come, his life will begin to resemble that of many of his well-intentioned but ill-fated characters. While John Garfield had been turned down for military service during World War II because of the heart problems that would later lead to his death at just the age of 39, he genuinely did more than almost any big star of the time to further the civilian war effort. He became a traveling entertainer, a war bond salesman, and joined with Betty Davis in forming the Hollywood Canteen, a combination restaurant and showplace, where servicemen on leave in Los Angeles could at no cost to themselves have meals served to them by the likes of stars Joan Crawford and Lana Turner, or maybe dance with Anne Sheridan or Joan Leslie, while watching Benny Goodman or Tommy Dorsey perform live. In 1944, Warner Brothers even made a morale-boosting film that capitalized on their stars' real-life interactions with servicemen, which is also called Hollywood Canteen, and which features Garfield as a host at these events. Perhaps because he was so good at this sort of thing, the Army once asked him to do a support show for the Tito Partisans in what was then Yugoslavia which he did, but it was something that would come back to haunt him during the Hollywood communist witch hunts of the late 1940s and early 1950s. In fact, Garfield did a lot of charity work after the war, too, and you can see pictures of him online with such entertainers as Danny Kaye and Al Jolson for such events as the United Jewish Appeal. But during the war, he made a lot of fictional war movies in Hollywood, where he was always a regular Joe, in such movies as Destination Tokyo, Pride of the Marines, and Air Force, none of which attempted to show the reality of combat, of course, though you might get the occasional glimpse of it. Their purpose, in addition to being entertaining, was to boost morale, while showing a certain nobility, heroism, and self-sacrifice on the part of the servicemen involved, always setting aside the concern of the individual for the greater cause of winning the war. In perhaps the best of these movies, Air Force, Garfield is very much the outsider, a man with a chip on his shoulder who learns to become a team player. And true to type, Garfield always played enlisted men in these films. Never did he play officers. That's what I meant at the beginning when I said that he was always playing working-class characters. The war era was definitely the peak of Garfield's stardom. But of course, every high point is a kind of prologue to a fall. And for Garfield, though there was much great work ahead, ominous things started to happen in 1945. On the domestic front, things were not great, with Garfield's wandering eye putting a serious strain on his marriage to his childhood sweetheart, 
Robbie, and there would be many fights and separations during their remaining years together. Even worse, a family tragedy occurred when daughter Catherine died from a severe allergic reaction when she was just six years old. Tragedy would also befall Garfield's son David, who would much later become an actor and film editor before dying of a drug overdose in 1995. But Garfield's daughter Julie, who would become a successful actress and acting teacher, wrote the introduction to the most recent major biography to be written about her father, entitled He Ran All the Way. And she remains to this day something of the keeper of the flame where her father is concerned. About her mother, Robbie, Julie Garfield has written, She was devoted to my father, very in love with him, right up until the end even when she remarried after his death. Whether it was just a coincidence, or a byproduct of the war, or perhaps a desire to be taken more seriously as an actor, virtually all of John Garfield's post-war movie performances are colored by a gloomy, ill-fated disposition. Few more so than The Postman Always Rings Twice from 1946, which is an adaptation of James M. Cain's novel of the same title. And certainly, this adaptation is one of the undisputed classics of the film noir style of filmmaking. He was shy, vibrant, and intelligent, and so ahead of his time, he had terrific magnetism said Lana Turner, Garfield's co-star in the movie. Indeed, the sexual chemistry between she and Garfield is so palpable that it's not hard to believe the stories that they had an affair during the making of the film. Both their characters are ordinary people doomed by poverty, lack of opportunity, and most especially by a kind of mutual self-delusion. Garfield plays a drifter who finds employment at a rural diner. Lana Turner is the older owner's restless young wife. The attraction between them is immediate, even fervent, and ultimately, quite true to film noir, fatal as well, when they decide to do away with her husband, but are caught and put on trial. Both Garfield and Turner are truly riveting in their roles as they fatalistically proceed to their demise. And if not quite his best performance, The Postman Always Rings Twice may be the best film that John Garfield was ever in. At about this time in 1946, and in a harbinger of things to come really, the Hollywood Reporter printed a story about the Actors Lab which was a theater company and acting school in Hollywood, which had said, without naming John Garfield, who was associated with it, that it was dominated by communists. Now, perhaps it's worth noting that method acting, which is the complete emotional identification with a part, was the polar opposite of what the Hollywood establishment promoted, and a complete rebuke to the idea of studio-manufactured stars. This could be seen as subversive, just as the politics with which it was associated in New York were definitely considered subversive, and this would soon cause grave problems for John Garfield himself. I mean, he was considered a method actor, bred and trained in New York City. 1946 was an extremely productive year for Garfield professionally, as it was for Hollywood as a whole, I mean, there were more cinema tickets sold in that year than ever before or since. He made a couple of really quite notable films besides The Postman Always Rings Twice in 1946. One of them was Nobody Lives Forever, um, an entertaining if slightly more conventional melodrama about a con man returning from the war who decides to go straight after he falls in love with one of his marks, a rich widow. However, complications ensue. I mean, they, they always do in melodramas. 
more importantly, he also made Humoresque, one of Garfield's most beloved films to this day, which was co-written by his friend Clifford Odets, who had done so much to advance his career back in New York City. With this screenplay for Humoresque, uh, Odets, I mean, who knew John Garfield quite well, worked Garfield's difficult relationship with his father into the plot of the film, which is about a talented violinist from the Lower East Side of New York. Joan Crawford um, plays in the film Humoresque, his troubled upper-class patron who also falls in love with him, even though the, there is a nice girl of Garfield's own class uh, waiting for him at home. Now, it's not hard to imagine that he found much to identify with in this story. And Humoresque was a huge hit. Certainly Garfield had believed in the film and enjoyed making it, and worked past the end of his contract with Warner Brothers in order to finish it. By the way, did you know um, that it's Isaac Stern who plays the violin that we hear so prominently? in the film. The following year um, was also quite notable for um, Garfield professionally. Um, he was in the 1947 Best Picture winner, Gentleman's Agreement, uh, in which he plays a character named Dave Goldman, the Jewish friend of Gregory Peck's journalist character who in the film pretends to be Jewish uh, in order to investigate a story on anti-Semitism. And although Garfield himself only has a small role in the film, he said it was a part that he didn't have to act, but one that he felt with all his heart. Gentleman's Agreement had been directed by Elia Kazan, Garfield's old colleague from the group theater in New York. Uh, and incidentally, although there are conflicting stories about this, Kazan wanted Garfield for the role of Stanley Kowalski in his original 1947 Broadway production of A Streetcar Named Desire, but uh, says that Garfield turned it down. I mean, one can easily see, I think, John Garfield embodying that confrontational sexual charisma that we so closely associate with uh, Marlon Brando, who, of course, was in that original 1947 Broadway production. But uh, alas, for whatever reason, um, if it is in fact true that he turned it down, Garfield was not in it. But um, nevertheless, he was in the movie Body and Soul, which is uh, in many ways just as notable as A Streetcar Named Desire. Um, contemporary film critic and scholar Jay Hoberman has written that with Garfield, working-class Jewish audiences of the time recognized him as one of their own. Not in, not in an aspirational sense of the term, but as someone who embodied their struggles. And in the intensity of his acting style and depth of feeling, I think it's fair to say that Garfield was, in some sense, the Jewish Brando. But returning to Gentleman's Agreement for a moment, um, that film had been given the go-ahead by Daryl Zanuck, studio chief of 20th Century Fox, apparently after he was himself refused membership in the Los Angeles Country Club because its members uh, or its leadership had assumed, incorrectly I might add, that he was Jewish. Um, the horrifying, but of course um, true. Neither Peck, whose agent had advised him to refuse the role in the film Gentleman's Agreement, believing Peck would be endangering his career by appearing in it, or Elia Kazan, the film's director, were Jewish either. Um, the screenwriter of Gentleman's Agreement, Moss Hart, was himself Jewish, though, but apparently 
some Jewish studio executives elsewhere were a little worried about this film going ahead, fearful that it would, in the words of Samuel Goldwyn, stir up trouble. But, you know, in recognition for producing Gentleman's Agreement, the Hollywood chapter of B'nai B'rith would honor Daryl Zanuck in it, as its Man of the Year for 1948. But we're moving a little far afield of our subject at hand. When Garfield's contract at Warner Brothers expired in 1946, he opted to go it alone. I mean, not many stars ventured out of the safe, if often artistically confining production line studio system of making films in Hollywood. But Garfield formed his own, if short-lived, production company called Enterprise, saying, and I quote here, I've saved every penny I ever made, and now I'm only going to do the pictures that I want to do. End quote. The first project he chose turned out to be one of his very best movies, Body and Soul. Garfield's performance garnered him his second Academy Award nomination for Best Actor, but he lost to Ronald Coleman. Nevertheless, his fledgling independent company was off to a promising start. Arguably, John Garfield, in his very best performances, is, I think, at his best when mostly acting only with his eyes and his face. They, they often communicate so much more than, than mere dialogue. In Body and Soul, there's a perfect example of this, with Garfield playing a boxer, Charlie Davis, who turns his back on his working-class background, ignoring his mother's plea that he fight for something, not just for money or for fame. In the movie's key scene, Charlie, now middleweight champion of the world, stands on the brink of total corruption, spiritual corruption. He's controlled by gangsters who have instructed him to throw the biggest fight of his career. And at the same time, he has just reconciled with his fiancée, played by Lily Palmer. They are visiting Charlie's mother in her Lower East Side tenement when a delivery of groceries arrives. The admiring delivery man is not just a fan, who tells Charlie that the whole neighborhood is betting on him to win his next fight. But he tells Charlie that he's the very personification of their hopes and dreams. You know, he says, the delivery man, in Europe, the Nazis are killing people like us because of our religion. But here, Charlie Davis is champion, and we are proud. I mean, that's very much an expression of Jewish pride and solidarity, and also exemplifies Garfield's significance, his cinematic significance, as its embodiment. And this, I think, may very well be his greatest performance. Inspired in part by the real-life story of boxer Barney Ross, as well as by the plot of Golden Boy, Body and Soul was perhaps the most Jewish movie made in Hollywood since the 1927 version of The Jazz Singer, with Garfield not only playing an explicitly Jewish character, but one whose love interest is a German-Jewish refugee. Body and Soul is also among the most left-wing of films that Hollywood has ever made. Communist Party members or associates included the director Robert Rosen, the screenwriter Abraham Polanski, and the producer Bob Roberts, as well as much of the cast. Most would be blacklisted in the years to come, and well before its release in late 1947, Body and Soul and those involved in its production 
were being investigated by the government, which claimed, according to an FBI document, that the film, and I quote here, put the rich and successful man in a bad light. End quote. And in effect, regarded the movie as a critique of capitalism. I mean, that may seem harmless today, but in late 1947, that was very much asking for trouble. Now, did John Garfield ever regard himself as a communist? Probably not. And there's not much evidence that he was ever a member of the Communist Party. He did, however, sign a lot of political petitions in his day. I mean, as easily as he would sign an autograph for a fan, really. For example, he endorsed the Medical Bureau of the North American Committee to Aid Spanish Democracy, which seems harmless. But um, according to the FBI, uh, it was supposedly a quote-unquote communist front organization. And in years to come, that would be considered sufficient evidence for someone like John Garfield to be considered a communist sympathizer or, in the parlance of the time, a fellow traveler. Though Garfield, in his typically self-deprecating way, once joked about being rejected by the Communist Party for being, he said, too stupid. You know, I think Garfield's black co-star in Body and Soul, Canada Lee, and the film's Chinese-American cameraman, James Wong Howe, are testament to the anti-racist politics at the forefront of a film like Body and Soul. Now, their inclusion may seem unremarkable today, but that was not so much the case at the time in 1947. Indeed, almost all of the people involved in making Body and the Soul were socially conscious leftists or liberals of a kind with working-class backgrounds quite similar to John Garfield's own. The actor, Canada Lee, by the way, would die at the age of 45, shortly before he was to appear before the Congressional House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, on May 9, 1952. And in remarkably similar circumstances, just 12 days before Garfield himself passed away. Indeed, the first HUAC hearings into the supposed communist influence in the Hollywood filmmaking industry took place during the production of Body and Soul. And it is where John Garfield was first mentioned as a possible communist. If this worried him, he didn't show it, nor did it stop him from publicly supporting socialist Henry Wallace in his campaign for American president in 1948. Garfield may have been on, on top of the world at this time, but the storm clouds were certainly gathering over both Hollywood and himself. I mean, a veritable witch hunt was ensuing and would envelop Hollywood in the coming years. I mean, in which, you know, the pasts of people in the movie industry were dug up and examined down to the minutest of details. And anyone who had even a slight glimmer of leftist or even liberal leanings was raked over the coals. Without exaggeration, the damage done would leave professional and personal wounds for decades to come. I mean, the premise was that the film industry, which had such tremendous influence over audiences, of course, was somehow infiltrated with dangerous subversives who were out to destroy the American way of life. That was the thinking at large in the United States in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And since many of these figures were Jewish, it's hard to say where the anti-communism of the period ends and a kind of anti-Semitism itself begins. In October of 1947, a group of Hollywood liberals that included Garfield traveled to Washington, D.C. to protest 
the HUAC investigations, and to support a group of writers, producers, and directors, known as the Hollywood Ten, who had been called before HUAC. But, in fact, they had been subpoenaed to do so, so they had no choice. They had to appear. But not only was their involvement, the involvement of those Hollywood liberals, including Garfield, ineffective, but membership itself in that group came to be regarded with suspicion. And Garfield was one of them, knowing that his friends Robert Rosen and Canada Lee were already in trouble. What he didn't see was that he was himself in danger. When a reporter asked him if he had ever been a communist, he responded, not explicitly denying that he was a communist or had ever been one, but that he wouldn't have been allowed to take part in his many USO shows during the war if the FBI had not vetted him thoroughly. It sounds reasonable, but he did not deny it. But what he told another reporter was that he was, and I quote here again, a Rooseveltian New Dealer. But the trouble is, liberalism is unpopular today, and anybody who is for the underdog gets labeled a red. End quote. Although not yet called to testify himself, Garfield was appalled at the hearings and publicly denounced them on the stairs outside the HUAC meeting room. He waved a statement that he co-signed with such fellow acting luminaries as Henry Fonda, Paulette Goddard, Myrna Loy, Gregory Peck, Catherine Hepburn, Van Heflin, Eddie Cantor, and others. And at one point during the hearings, HUAC committee member John Rankin read a list of Hollywood Ten supporters into the record. And I quote him here to demonstrate how that anti-communism was often conflated with anti-Semitism. This is Rankin. Quote, Another one was Danny Kaye. We found out his real name was David Daniel Kaminsky. Then there's Edward G. Robinson. His real name is Emanuel Goldenberg. Another, he calls himself Melvin Douglas, whose real name is Melvin Hasselberg. End quote. I mean, come on. Remarks such as these and many others, especially anything that these often conservative Southern politicians regarded as suspiciously foreign-sounding suggest that anti-Semitism was definitely a factor in the U.S. government's communist-inspired witch hunt of the time. At about this time, John Garfield moved back to New York City where he appeared in another of Clifford Odette's plays, The Big Knife, about the travails of a big-time movie actor, much like himself, uh, blackmailed by his studio, though, of course, uh, Garfield was, was not yet blackmailed. And in fact, he was no longer even a studio employee. He had gone independent, as I mentioned. Uh, and it is a role that Odette's, um had modeled, at least in part, on Garfield himself. Garfield's next film was the second and last of the films produced by his production company, Enterprise, and it really couldn't have come at a worse time for him. In Force of Evil, made in 1948, he plays another poor kid who has risen up from the mean streets of New York. His character, Joe Morris, is a slick, ambitious lawyer who implements a fix that would allow his criminal boss to consolidate his gambling racket by driving small-time gambling operations out of business. Um, this movie, both written and directed by his friend, Abraham Polanski, who of course had written Body and Soul, uh, really depicts a world of widespread corruption. Many critics, uh, and Polanski himself, saw Force of Evil as an allegory for capitalism, um, you know, seeing in capitalism one big racket. And in later decades, Polanski would refer to it um, explicitly as such. In the movie, um, 
one enforcer whines, what do you mean, gangsters? It's just business. And, of course, that may sound familiar, preceding The Godfather by 25 years. Indeed, the opening line of Force of Evil, This is Wall Street, hangs metaphorically over the rest of the movie. But in any case, like Body and Soul, Force of Evil is a magnificent movie about the deleterious effects of material corruption upon the soul. And one of Garfield's very best and most characteristic performances. You can't tell about your life until you're all through living it, Garfield's Joe Morris says in the film. And, I mean, have truer words ever been spoken? Force of Evil is quite a dark movie, both thematically and visually, one made with a lot of shadows and shady characters. And certainly, it's one of the best examples of the film noir of the period. The movie reached theaters in late 1948, but it was not a commercial hit. In fact, it lost a lot of money. And so Enterprise, Garfield's production company, went bankrupt. But the film remains today a classic, and Garfield's role in it, both pivotal and an inspiration to generations of future actors. Garfield was the darling of the romantic rebels, beautiful, enthusiastic, rich with the know-how of street intelligence. His friend and writing colleague, Abraham Polanski, said about him, I continue. He had passion and a lyrical sadness that was the essence of the role that he created, as it was created for him. The group theater trained him. The movies made him. The blacklist killed him. This is what Abraham Polanski wrote late in his own life about John. Garfield. Meanwhile, and rather inauspiciously, Garfield made another political film after Force of Evil in 1949, this time a drama entitled We Were Strangers, co-starring Jennifer Jones, and set in Cuba in 1933. Um, It will come as no surprise to you that it was denounced as quote-unquote, communist-inspired by some critics in the press, and that it, too, failed at the box office. Now, with Garfield's support for the Hollywood Ten, the tone of such films as Force of Evil and We Were Strangers, plus the novelty of his breakaway from the studio system, informing his own production company, as well as the long list of his associates, kept Garfield under suspicion by both HUAC and the FBI as a possible communist. The stress was starting to get to him, and perhaps for this reason he had a heart attack at around this time. Gregory Peck once said that when he ran into Garfield shortly after Garfield got out of the hospital, that his friend and fellow actor demonstrated an extremely cavalier, even macho attitude towards his heart condition. In other words, he dismissed it, perhaps worried that he couldn't afford the bad publicity of being sick, or so he pretended that he wasn't. Or more likely, he felt he was just too young to worry about it and carried with him much of the arrogance of his still relative youth. However, and like so many others, Garfield was also starting to back away from his support for the Hollywood Ten. Such was the fear of the time when careers could be ruined and lives wrecked. But in 1950, and not yet under the full glare of the HUAC spotlight, Garfield returned to Warner Brothers, the studio that had made him a star all those years ago, for a film called The Breaking Point, which reunited him with director Michael Curtiz. The Breaking Point is based on Ernest Hemingway's To Have and Have Not, and is much more faithful to the original story than the more famous movie version with Bogart and Bacall, which came out in 1944. In The Breaking Point, 
Garfield plays fishing boat captain Harry Morgan, a man undermined by his own weaknesses. His co-star is Patricia Neal as a predatory and barely disguised prostitute. Her memories of making the film with Garfield were not fond ones. She remembered that he had been brusque, rough, and sarcastic with her, that he was, in her words, kind of macho, um, like he had to play that part off screen as well. And, as she said, it kind of turned me off. But on the plus side, there's another rich relationship in the film with a black character, this time played by actor Juano Hernandez in the Walter Brennan role from the 1944 film. The breaking point opened in September 1950, but Warner Brothers was not fully behind it, which is a pity because it's really quite a good movie. And that Warner Brothers wasn't fully behind it, I, I wonder if um, there wasn't some deliberation regarding that. But uh, in any case, it too did poorly at the box office. More importantly, that same year, 1950, at around the time of the making of his last film, he ran all the way. The anti-communist publication Red Channels named John Garfield as a supporter of 17 communist groups. He was also, at about the same time, listed by the Department of Defense as being among those performers barred from appearing on future USO tours. So Garfield was now, in effect, blacklisted, and no Hollywood studio would hire him or finance any more of his independent productions. In New York, opportunities for work dropped off too. Doors were closed to him, and former friends avoided him. Such was the power of the blacklist, that any contact with someone blacklisted was potentially lethal to one's career. In He Ran All the Way, Garfield plays a desperate thief on the run from the police after a botched robbery. Although made in 1950, but not released until June of 1951, He Ran All the Way was directed by John Barry, who would flee the country shortly afterwards. As would one of the screenwriters, Hugo Butler. The other screenwriter, Dalton Trumbo, went uncredited on the film because he had already fallen victim to the blacklist. This was the height of the anti-communist hysteria in the U.S., the time of the Korean War, and also the trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg on charges of spying for the USSR. On April 23, 1951, before the theatrical release of He Ran All the Way, Garfield was finally served a subpoena to testify before HUAC. He had been anticipating this for a year. He was also being followed by the FBI. According to biographers, HUAC went after him knowing full well that he was not a member of the Communist Party, but that they did so because they thought that they could get him to name his friends and other associates who were, and they wanted the headlines that this would create on behalf of the committee. Whether or not Garfield ever regarded himself as a communist is, as I've said, unlikely. He certainly did, however, believe in progressive causes, which was perfectly natural coming from his background and his identification with both the poor and the persecuted of the world. But one of Huack's most destructive ploys was to bring to the stand so-called friendly witnesses. In other words, anyone who would point the finger at a colleague. And this is probably what they had hoped for with John Garfield, that he would name names in the famous phrase of the day. And once pointed out, that person would be as good as finished in the movie business. At Garfield's appearance before the committee, he was asked about John Barry, 
and Hugo Butler. But Garfield said nothing. They asked him who wrote He Ran All the Way, and he didn't mention Dalton Trumbo. He tried to appease his accusers, who were often themselves a little starstruck by the figures before them. And he tried to charm them, all without naming names. In a statement, even before speaking to the committee, he said, I have nothing to hide and nothing to be ashamed of. My life is an open book. I am no red. I am no pink. I am no fellow traveler. I am a Democrat by politics, a liberal by inclination, and a loyal citizen of this country by every act of my life. End quote. But when pressed on the issue, he not only denied knowing anything about communism, he denied having ever met a single communist. But that was just a demonstrable falsehood. After all, his own wife, Robbie, had been a party member. But while Garfield may never have been a party member himself, he had no desire to put the finger on any of his friends or any of his colleagues just to save his own career. That just was not John Garfield in any true sense of the man. The interrogation lasted about 11 hours in total, but he stayed true to himself. Nevertheless, to withhold names before HUAC was to be held in contempt of Congress, and for that, he could go to jail. And that's why he lied about not knowing anyone who had been or was now a member of the Communist Party. Perhaps in doing that, he was looking back to his own boyhood street gang days, you know, where it was the creed to stubbornly refuse to rat on a pal. And to have done so, I think, would have been his downfall, his spiritual downfall, like some of the characters that he played in his movies. If he had named names, he would have been cleared of suspicion of supposed communist sympathies and freed to work again. But to his credit, he did not. And he suffered the most drastic of circumstances for not doing so. The most immediate result was that John Garfield became the only major movie star of the era to be blacklisted after Huack gave his testimony to the FBI and asked them to build a perjury case. Garfield privately commented to a friend, where I come from, you don't snitch on people. Nevertheless, he was deeply worried that he was going to go to jail. Director Barry, a native New Yorker who left the country because of the blacklist and would later direct films in France for decades, said, and I quote him here, that the pressure to cooperate with the committee was very powerful. The tension to play ball must have crossed his mind. And while this may sound romantic, I think what happened was, faced with the option, Julius Garfinkel of the Bronx said to the John Garfield of Hollywood, you can't do this to me. And so John Garfield packed his bags and died. The only way to clear himself was to rat on his friends, and he would not do that. End quote. In late 1951, the now out of work John Garfield said to an interviewer, I'll act anywhere. But he was physically run down, and his morale was low after failing to get work on television in New York. He took what work he could get on Broadway, appearing in a performance of Henrik Ibsen's Peter Gint for director and friend Lee Strasberg. But it was a small production that had only a four-week run 
in which everyone involved earned a flat $75 per week. But in March of that year, 1952, he finally got to play Joe Bonaparte, the young man torn between the separate worlds of the violin and boxing in the movie Golden Boy on Broadway, in a performance directed by Clifford Odets, who had written the play for John Garfield 15 years earlier. Meanwhile, the FBI was still tailing him, eventually compiling a thousand-page file on his comings and goings. I mean, you think they'd have better things to do, right? Panicked that he might go to jail, Garfield wrote an article for Look magazine called I Was a Sucker for a Left Hook, in which he denounced communism and said he had been duped into supporting various left-wing causes, but the magazine refused to publish it. It was a hot potato, and they did not want to touch him. The stress on his marriage was so great that he and Robbie separated when it looked certain that he was going to be indicted for perjury. His daughter, Julie Garfield, um, has said in recent years that her mother, Robbie, always believed that HUAC was interested in finding one well-known left-leaning Jewish Hollywood actor that they could make an example of. This is what she says her mother believed. She says the choice was between three actors, Edward G. Robinson, Danny Kaye, and John Garfield. They decided on Garfield because as an independent figure who was no longer contracted to any of the studios, he made for the easiest target. This is at least the theory of uh, Julie Garfield as based on the beliefs of her mother, Robbie. In May 1952, Garfield met with the FBI, which showed him the file that they had been compiling. They offered him another chance to name names, but again he refused. He then spent his last days in futility, going over past letters, old tax forms, anything that he thought could disprove that he had ever done any harm to the country that he loved. His biographers report that fierce loyalty to his friends and his beliefs never wavered, but that he did succumb to a great anger born of both confusion and fear. And that because of this, he became estranged from his family. He was already separated from his wife. And that he disappeared for days on end and began drinking heavily and would go without sleep for long periods of time. He was in bad shape. In the words of film historian Katrina Longworth, Garfield's life was beginning to resemble that of one of his on-screen protagonists. Like the Watergate hearings 20 years after all of this, HUAC testimony was broadcast live on the radio. And just a few days before he died, John Garfield listened to his friend and colleague Clifford Odets as he appeared before the committee. And while Odets did not name Garfield as a communist, he did name their mutual friend from their days with the group theater, J. Edward Bromberg who had recently died of a heart attack. This must have been stressful for Garfield himself to listen to. He was living in a hotel at the time while seeing an actress named Iris Whitney one night on May 21st, 1952. After dining out, he complained that he wasn't feeling well. She put him to bed. When she went to check on him the next morning, he was dead. He had died of a heart attack, and he was only 39 years of age. 
Garfield's funeral in New York was mobbed by 10,000 distraught fans, most of them seemingly working class, and many of them African-American. In his obituary for the New York Times, Archer Winston wrote that Garfield had been loyal to people, not to a place, not to a country, not to a constitution. But as Abraham Polanski put it years later, and much more directly, John Garfield defended his street boy's honor, and they killed him for it. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. Please join me next week at this time for more movie talk, during which I will provide some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch those recommendations. I also have a new program entitled Movie Time, each Tuesday on Zoom. Please contact the library in order to participate in the discussion every week about a new movie on Netflix. Uh, oh, and to watch award-winning and thought-provoking films, please check out the streaming site Canopy, which is available on the library website. I cannot recommend Canopy highly enough. And we'll speak about it in future weeks. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at cosaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best and bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day.